Ordinary Mind Meditation Podcast presents Face to Face with Bodhi and Bass. I'm Mark Shenyun Gillinson, and in this series I host artists, philosophers, skeptics, and magicians in my hermitage for a chat about the human spirit, creativity, and the real pursuit of happiness. If you enjoy this podcast, please support us by going to bodhibase.com forward slash support. That's B-O-D-H-I-B-A-S-S dot com forward slash support. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Ami Tofo. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Sharpenberg. Daniel has said about himself, Most Buddhist teachers probably look at me the same way as vampires look at Count Chocula. I find this very telling, as his humility and lightness of spirit are really evident in his approach. In this conversation you'll hear me getting to know Daniel, and we discuss such topics as studying Buddhism online, and the day-to-day practice of a modern-day Buddhist teacher. The sound quality was slightly challenging sometimes, which forced me to make some cuts to our conversation, but I trust that nonetheless you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And now I bring you Daniel Sharpenberg. In people's faces I can read A book of endless misery Turn and run till I can run no more The Buddha's wisdom is a treasury The Dharma's light shines bright on me Head in the clouds, feet on the other Thanks a lot for doing this with me. I'm really excited about the opportunity to do it because uh, from all these interactions we've been having sort of online, I have a feeling that we have lots of things in common in the way that we look at things and kind of the way that we also live our life and practice. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. And... uh, There's nothing I like as much as arguing with somebody who agrees with me. (laughs) That's one of the most fun things to do. Are we going to argue right now? I mean, I hope we get to the point of arguing, or at least have a heated discussion. All right. Because I think one of the things that we both have a sort of... uh, I don't know if a dislike is too strong a word, but I mean for the fake spiritual persona the sort of mountain-dwelling hippie type. 
sort of you know like what I mean? Yeah, like like somebody who's like, um, okay, now take a deep breath and yeah. <laughs> be one with yeah. <laughs> yeah, the people with the voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've I've also noticed that in myself lately looking back at like when I started the podcast and good friends of mine who are not unnecessarily kind to me they've told me in no uncertain terms that I have to drop the voice myself that's something that happens when you do a guided meditation and you you just automatically do the voice and I've noticed I have to stop doing that yeah the voices like that just make me want to go to sleep so Yes. And and maybe that's sometimes good, but that's not really what I'm looking for. <laughs> yes, right. So that's that's part of the that's a good place to start because I wanted to talk about um your idea of Buddhism for boring people. So you also as do I, I think subscribe to the idea that this path uh this practice is not meant for some monks who live somewhere far in a cave and want to run away from the world, but that this is something that just anybody, any normal person, can also benefit from. Do I understand your views correctly on this? So, I don't know if I think that uh, people that are going off to live in the mountains are doing it wrong, necessarily, but I certainly think that that's not what I'm doing. I don't think that's the only way to practice and I don't like that people think that that's what you have to do because I think that puts a barrier up that makes a lot of people not even not even start, not even try because they think they're going to have to give up their life and go be somewhere else and give up all worldly attachments and not have any fun and you know all that. So, right, I think it's I think it should be for everyone and you shouldn't have to um give up everything you enjoy. You shouldn't have to quit your job and become a monk or a, I don't know what else you would do that would, would fit that view besides being a monk, maybe a yoga teacher or something. I don't think you have to do that. I think that we should be able to be in the world and still engage these teachings and still get the benefit of these teachings. So, I really think that people get shamed for not for not doing really long retreats or for not quitting their jobs and running away or for not sitting with the right teachers or wearing the right robes or whatever. And I don't like I don't like people being shamed because I think that really we're all trying to do our best and we shouldn't be gatekeepers. We shouldn't be telling people that they're not doing it right because they're not doing everything that we envision a perfect person doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. What about most of humanity who don't practice anything? How do you encourage them? So, my primary concern with people who have never practiced, who know nothing about the practice we're doing, my primary concern is that they could think it's weird or they could get scared away. I think people get scared away really easily. So, uh, my primary concern is we need to be as welcoming as we possibly can and stay as welcoming as we can be for as long as we can because i think people really need that and i think people in in my own community i try to go to public places and lead public meditations because there are even people who are afraid to even set foot in a meditation center and i even want to reach them so i try to do it outside so that people don't even have to enter a door or go down a hallway because i think even that very few people will go to a meditation center 
or a Buddhist temple alone because they're a little bit nervous to go to a place like that for the first time by themselves. And I really... Maybe for good reason. For good reason, right. So I think that we need to try to... And there, I think there's lots of non-spiritual things that people are afraid to do by themselves, go to the movies or go to dinner or whatever. So I don't think it's necessarily completely because it's a spiritual practice, but I want to reach those people. I want those people that maybe have no friends who are interested in meditation at all. I want to reach them and give them a chance to hopefully not be scared away and to hopefully kind of try to engage the practice so that they have an opportunity that they don't have right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that also strengthens my conception that we're quite similar in this pursuit. So maybe this is a good moment now that we've already sort of we took a dive right into it, but maybe it's a good moment to take a step back and say a thing about your own history with practice, because I know a little bit about your history, but I don't know much. And I know you're from Kansas, and on my side of the globe, I think Kansas is mostly a place where hurricanes carry off girls to magical lands. And that's as much as we know about it. But, uh, yeah, where are you situated? Where are you from? How did you start practicing, etc.? Okay. So, I live in Kansas City, which is in the state of Missouri, which is next to Kansas. Yeah, a lot of people from far, far away tend to think that it's like farms or whatever out here. But, I mean, it's a, it's a city. It's um, eight hours away from Chicago. It's a little bit smaller than Chicago is where I live. And let me think, how did I start practicing? So I was in college and I learned about Buddhism there. And was that in Kansas? In yeah, I went to Kansas Kansas University, KU. Mm-hmm. I'll talk more about my college in a minute, but I had a class called Eastern Civilization. And in this class we learned about the different countries in Asia and their history, their their cultural development. So in that class I had the opportunity to learn about India, China, Japan, Thailand, and I learned in those units, I learned about what Buddhism was like in all those countries. I think think maybe my teacher was a fan of Buddhism, and that's why he went into, into those details, but I don't know. But I learned about, you know, Buddhism in those different places. Mm-hmm. So there, I learned about Buddhism, and something in it really stuck with me. I don't want to get too personal, but I had lost my parents. My parents had both passed away before I started college, and so... Um, the reality of suffering was kind of something I was struggling with. So when I learned the Buddha story and I learned, you know, mindfulness and compassion, these things can bring us contentment, you know, and sitting and being in the moment, all these things. When I learned all these things, it really resonated with me. And I really thought, oh, I should, I should learn more about this. I should try to study this a little. So that's what I did. I started, first I started going to the library, getting any books I could find, and I started you know, I was going to the bookstore and buying books too, and I started trying to teach myself how to practice. And I, and I did just sort of practice by myself for a really long time. And mm-hmm. a few years went by, and I, I found a temple here in my city. After I'm out of college by this time, but I did find a temple here in the, in my city to go to. It was a Tibetan Buddhist temple, and I don't. I had decided early on that Zen was my favorite, so I didn't. I kind of resisted going to that temple for a while because I knew. Tibetan Buddhism was kind of going to be some some stuff that was different than what I wanted. I knew that. And 
But I kind of started practicing with that community. I was engaged with them for a long time and practicing with them for a long time. And that was mostly a good experience. But um, ultimately, what I really want to focus on is when I started writing, because one day, and I don't know why this occurred to me to do this, but I wanted, I had decided I was going to be a Buddhist and I wanted to just write a thing that says why I'm a Buddhist. And this was back in the MySpace days. I wanted to make a note on MySpace that said, this is why I'm a Buddhist and just kind of describe what I'm doing. I don't know why I wanted to do that, but I wanted to share that with my friends and relatives. I was uh, coming out of the meditation closet. That's what I call it. But I was, um, <laughs> I had this naive notion that people on social media read everything that their friends post. And I don't think that's true anymore, but I had that idea back then. So I thought, well, I'm just going to write this and I'll say I'm a Buddhist and everybody will know what that means to me and what I mean by that. So when I wrote this little thing, and I don't know if I even still have it, but when I wrote it, I realized I love writing about this. I really love writing about this. So I started up a blog, and I started just writing about Buddhism all the time. And some time after that, I was contacted by a Korean Zen monk here in Kansas City. And I joined this Korean Zen order called Five Mountain Zen Order, and I practiced with them for a while. Um, I ended up leaving them because they said all our monks have to wear robes all the time. And I was not going to really? do that. I was not going to wear robes to work and to my kids' birthday parties and to, you know, to everything. Like, I was not going to do that. So so in what sense did, uh, did do you mean a monk if you had kids by this time? Right. So, and that's the other thing. And I don't want to disparage that organization, but they use the word monk and they don't mean... Monk, they they use the word monk instead of Zen priest when everyone else uses the word Zen priest, right? So they are not celibate and they have jobs. Oh yeah, that's it's very, very weird, but I wasn't well versed enough to know how, how different that was from what every other community does, but they use the word monk for that and I wish they would. I wouldn't. mean, I think there's a couple of places that use that word, and I mean probably because of the Japanese influence, there's a whole question about what meaning what being a monk mean in uh, Zen Buddhism means it's kind of shifted right over time right I think uh, it's it's a tragedy really and I wish we had different words than these because and I mean of course we do we could use the original language and say bhikkhu but I don't know that monk and priest even fit the terms for what we do very well yeah especially like I'm from Israel and when I go to Israel and try to say the equivalent, the Hebrew equivalent of priest, it just really doesn't go over well at all. <laughs> and I'm looking for a better translation of, yeah, that's still an issue to be solved. Maybe we'll solve it today. Who knows? It may be. Yeah. I like to say, just say teacher. But right. um, I don't think this group even has that rule anymore, but they had the rule then, our monks have to wear robes full time. And I was not going to do that. I felt that was extreme. I don't even like to wear robes now, really. So certainly I was not going to do that full time. So after I left that group, I started practicing with different groups online. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I studied with a Chan teacher whose name is Shida Dao, and he has a kind of a bad reputation among the community, and I didn't know that at the time. But I studied with him for a long time, and I learned a lot. And then a little bit later, of course, I was welcomed into 
Dharma wins Zen Sangha, not a little bit later, a lot later, pretty recently. And uh, I started studying with Yaosin, who um, has really helped me to kind of overcome some of the obstacles from previous teachers I've had because they've not always been the best and has really encouraged me to sort of wear robes and sort of present myself as a more traditional teacher. Yeah, I I second absolutely the recommendation of him as a teacher. He is my main teacher and a lot of things that before seemed to me to be too strange and I was too afraid to do, I really got the encouragement and the reasonableness to do through him. Yeah, I like him a lot. And I think um, when I first started talking to him, he told me that he had been following me for a while. And um, he actually started bringing up things I had written about a while ago. And I knew that 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 was true. He had been following me. I'm a very, or I at least have gone through periods. I've been a very prolific writer um, in my blog and also other uh, websites have have asked me to write for them too. So my work is, is out there a lot. And yes. I'm glad about that, but I also think if somebody wants to read all my work, they're going to have a tough time because there's a lot. Yes. I did not do a good job preparing for today, <laughs> by the way. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good then. You can't bring up anywhere where I made a mistake. That's true. But also, yeah, part of this is that I kind of wanted to get to know you and not sort of make any strange opinions. So there's this website I wrote for. I wrote there a lot of times and then I was offered the chance to be a co-owner and of course and I took that because I really I like the website it's the tattooed buddha uh the tattooedbuddha.com and I was made a co-owner of that website and there's lots of good oh I I got you to write there didn't I Yeah I just did my first one a little bit yeah. ago So I'm I'm a co-owner of that website in addition to having all my other projects That's awesome And lastly I I do video teachings through a service called the Open Heart Project, which is a collection of different Buddhist teachers. And it's a service people have to pay for, but they get to see a teaching every day from different Buddhist teachers. And I'm one of the teachers in there. And I was really surprised and honored when I was offered that chance. But um, that's another thing I do. And I guess that's all I have right now about what I'm doing and where I've come from. That's really great. And that Brings me to another really interesting topic I wanted to talk to you about, which was the whole theme, which, I mean, from some interactions that I've had, I know this theme can be slightly, maybe even controversial for some reason. But uh, the idea of having online teachers studying online and this whole world of Buddhist practice long distance is quite new and i mean to me personally you're one of the people who proves the efficacy of the method but you know people question it and there are reasons to question it as well because there are things that happen in a face-to-face -face environment where a person observes your behavior let's say when you're not in a teaching situation which also observing these interactions outside of that formal teaching situation has some sort of influence on the teaching itself, on the way that the teacher then guides you. And I wonder what you have to say about the whole world of studying online. And I'll just make the disclaimer that I've been studying online for a while now, and I'm actually a huge fan of this method. 
but uh, do you balance it with also, uh, let's say, live retreats with teachers, or how how would you what would you say about the topic of being a student of Buddhism online? Okay, so first, um, this is a heavy topic. I think it is something that people argue about these days. I think um, I want to tell you about a friend I have. I have this friend, and his name is John. And he lives in the middle of nowhere uh, in a farming community. And he says he lives between two cornfields. I don't know if that's true. I don't know re- what his house really looks like. But he doesn't live in a city like I do, right? He lives really far away from anyone that would ever care about Buddhism, right? And I think that there are people like him that need to be served somehow, right? And I think that not too long ago, his only choice would have been to order to buy books and read them and practice by himself. And that would have been it. He would have had no opportunity to feel like he's part of something. He would have had no opportunity to talk to teachers unless, of course, he took a very long journey to go somewhere. And not everybody can do that, right? Traveling is expensive on its own, not to mention If you're traveling to see a teacher, you're probably going on a retreat, which is also expensive. So I think that technology has is doing so much. And yes, there are huge limitations to talking to teachers online, trying to practice online. There are huge limitations to that. And we're trying to figure those out, I think, as the world goes forward. But I'm really excited by the potential to practice and study and learn online. I'm really excited by that. And I I think, why shouldn't we do it? Colleges, you know, colleges do it. So I think we should be able to do that. In spite of the limitations, we should be thinking of new and innovative ways to get around those limitations. And there are so many things that we can do online now. We have video conferencing. So if you're doing koan practice, you can do koans with a teacher through video very easily, right? And if you're doing Sitting together practice, you can do that on video too. So I think that the potential benefits are huge and we should try to get around those those weaknesses as well as we can. So what are some of those weaknesses? So if I have an online community and I'm thinking of right now the thing that I see in-person Buddhist communities sometimes struggle with these things too. Things like if I break my leg, And I really need people to bring me things. You know, that's what I can remember uh, when I was a kid, when my father passed away. um, Our church community started bringing us food every night. My mother didn't have to cook for a long time. And I think that spiritual communities do that. And of course, if you have an online community, that's not going to be possible. And I also think like any kind of social thing. So if you go with your temple community and you go out to dinner or something, That's a hard thing to do in an online practice as well. So the things we think of as really community, those are the hardest things to to bring into an online practice. The things we think of as bringing people together, making people feel closer. Those are the things that are just really challenging, and I don't know how to work with those things. That's what I see as the biggest challenges. Yes. But do you think there are also any limitations in the teaching relationship itself i mean between you and your teacher or between you and your students you have both 
views. So that would be interesting. So are there limitations in the teaching relationship when there's a long distance teaching? I think that to a certain extent, I think as a, as a teacher, it may be harder to get to know students. But as a student, I don't think it's actually harder. As a student, I think if your teacher is good at being available, and maybe some teachers aren't good at being available, but I think if your teacher's good at being available, I think the limitations are are small. But as a teacher, especially if you're training a student and you want them to be elevated to your level, you want them to you want to certify them, you want to vouch for them, that that could be tougher. It might be something that you're more nervous about because you don't know them in a social setting and you're not going to know them in a social setting. So you you only know them in this very specific way. So in that sense, I think that's something to be nerv- a little wary of. But uh, for a student, I don't I don't see limitations there. Uh, I, I tend to agree with that. And I, I also think that the potential is much greater than the downsides. And I think also that a lot of the downsides can probably be mitigated somehow. There's still a lot to be figured out, but I've benefited from this so much that I really think it's worth it for all of us who are engaged in this to pursue more ways and explore the ways that already exist and pursue new, better ways to share this uh, practice with people. But I want to challenge you in a, a bit of a different way, because you said you brought the easy example before of somebody who doesn't live close to you. And if somebody doesn't live near any Buddhist center or any organization, uh, then online teaching is clearly a great solution for them. But what about me? I live in a place that has, I don't know, five, six, seven different Buddhist organizations. And some of them have English-speaking teachers, and I mean, there's really n- nothing stopping me from being a part of a live community besides the fact that I simply was drawn to a particular community and a particular teacher. So I don't really have an excuse for studying online. It just sort of happened, and now I just like it. This could be criticized. Oh, um, I think, I think there also, we have to leave room for I just like it. And so not only that, and I'm not going to ask what those communities are like, not only I think we have to leave room for I just like it, but also for myself, I really wanted to practice in the Zen tradition. In my area, there are many, there are several Tibetan Buddhist communities, and there's just a really little Zen community that I didn't connect with very well. I want to practice in the Zen tradition, and I could join one of these other ones, and I spent a lot of time with one of these other ones, but I really, it's not what I want. What I want is the Zen tradition. What I want is to practice in a specific way, and I think people run into that as well. So I I want to leave a lot of room and say people don't have to settle for what's there also. People don't have to settle for what's there, and there has to be room for I just like it, because you you personally connected with your teacher really well. And that's, that's why you're not really looking at these local communities because you're getting what you need and you just like it. And that's okay. And I think 
we need to leave more room for that. I, I don't know if a lot of people have bad attitudes about that and say, no, you need a community. But I think if you're able to relate to your teacher and you're able to practice without going to one of these communities, without horrible difficulty, then I think that that's just fine. And I think people should not shame you for that. I think there should be room for I just like it. I really agree with that. So let me ask you something different, because I think it could also be interesting to people who don't completely know what we're talking about, who are not from the, don't have an insider's view of Buddhism and all the shop talk that we do. It would be interesting to them to know what a person who doesn't live in a temple and doesn't uh, serve uh, a community near them, but still has, I mean, how would you define yourself? You're a Buddhist teacher. That's what you do. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, what what does a Buddhist teacher live his life as day to day? What What does your daily life look like? That's a really good question. So, I think not that different from everybody else's. I just am trying my best to follow the path, but I'm also... I'm doing what everybody else does. I'm going to work. I'm being with my family. I'm having hobbies. You know, I'm doing what everybody else does. And I'm also trying my best to practice. I'm trying my best to make sure I sit and meditate. I'm studying. I'm writing. I'm doing all those things. But I don't see myself as fundamentally different from the people I'm teaching. And that's very important to me because I think that is how people are able to relate to me because they don't. They don't see me as separate from them. And that's that's very important to me. And that's why I say things like I don't like to wear robes because I want to be down to earth and I want people to see me as the same as them because I don't I don't see myself as anything special. I just am someone that really likes to talk about Buddhism and likes to encourage people and likes to write a lot. And I've been called an everyman Buddhist teacher and I really like that. I don't I don't like the fancy stuff. I don't I don't like to think of myself as elevated, really. I try to avoid that. That's much better than monk. What did you say? Everyday, the everyday Buddhist? Everyday Buddhist teacher? The everyday Buddhist teacher. There you go. We just resolved the monk-priest conundrum. Yeah. Okay, so somebody hears that, and you say you're not very different. They might ask themselves, wait, so what's the point? But why are you practicing Buddhism? Why should I practice Buddhism? What is it that you do? Okay, so I practice Buddhism because life is hard and it helps me to have a more contented and nuanced view of myself and the world around me and helps me to be more present and to not let insignificant things upset me because that that is something that I struggled with for many years and Buddhism helped me a lot is just that that sort of that sort of worry about nothing that was that was my struggle and that struggle is less because of my practice of buddhism i i really believe that and i think that that is what buddhism helps with it helps with just the little things that that tear us up sometimes and really it helps us with the big things too i have a practice i can go to if something really terrible happens or if i'm really afraid that something terrible is about to happen. I have a practice I can go to that not only keeps me even most of the time, but also that I can I can bring into a situation when I'm struggling. 
that's very interesting. So what's the relationship between practicing and daily life? What's the balance there? Let me just specify better what I'm trying to ask. Uh, when I say what's the relationship, you said I can bring meditation into situations that are, or I can bring my practice into situations that are difficult and where the practice can help me. But what exactly is the place of practice? You know what I mean? I think so. So, um, there are several aspects to this. I want to try not to be confusing. So, I do a practice at night. I used to, I used to practice in the mornings and at some point I shifted to doing it at night. Um, but I do a sitting practice at night. I, I'll be honest, I don't do it every night, but I really wish I did. That's my honest answer. I don't do it every night, but I wish I did. But I do a sitting practice at night and that's real talk. That's Buddhist that, real talk. <laughs> that's Buddhist real talk. And I I feel that that kind of keeps me more even and more, you know, more aware. And But in addition to that, if I'm in a stressful situation, I have a practice I like to do called the healing breath. Are you familiar with the healing breath? Sure. I love it. I will bring that. I can bring that into any situation. And so far, it always works. I will just take a moment, breathe in very slowly and hold my breath and breathe out very slowly. And that gives me a minute to calm myself down and even myself out even more. Great. You want to explain in a sentence the practice for the good people who want to know? Yeah. So there are different, this is a number practice. There are different versions of it. And the one I do is I breathe in very slowly and I mentally count to five and then I hold my breath and I mentally count to five and then I breathe out very slowly and count to five. So it's supposed to take five seconds to breathe in, hold my breath for five seconds and then it takes five seconds to breathe out. So every breath is 15 seconds long and I will do that three times. And then when I do that, I'm, I'm calmer, I'm more centered, I'm more able to deal with whatever's happening. I think uh, nothing helps us focus on the breath more than not breathing, I think. And there are different versions of mm -hmm. this. Some people say you should like count to two while you breathe in and count to six while you hold your breath and things like that. And I have trouble remembering those. So I just do five, breathe in, hold my breath, five, five, breathe out. And it, every time I've tried it, it has, it has worked. It has helped me be centered and focused on whatever it is I want to focus on. I like that. Well, there we go. Thanks a lot, Daniel. It really was a big pleasure. And yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and join our community on Facebook at Bodhi and Base. 
All the links are in the episode description. Thank you for joining today, and may you be content and at peace. Amitofo. Thank you.